Tell show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome back and welcome to Wednesday, March the 23rd. Year of our Lord 2022 just continues to roll on almost through March already. Kind of hard to believe, folks. Spring break coming fast for a lot of folks, wherever you and yours are across the street and around the world. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have your time today as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Got a lot of things we're going to cover. Really important piece in our second segment. We're going to try to get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin a little bit, some perspective that is not getting presented in Western media, some things I've talked about, but there's an interview in uh, Der Spiegel over in Germany that gives great insight. We're going to touch into that, give you some excellent information and insight into Vladimir Putin and his war of aggression in Ukraine. Also, uh, we're going to talk about in the last segment, a great story. We always try to end on a high note. I love this one, a story about adoption. One of the primary barriers of adoption though, is it's very, very expensive. You have to get lawyers involved. Anytime a lawyer gets involved, it's going to get expensive. And someone who adopted and found a way to give back to others. Love that story so much. Going to cover that one. Uh, also touch in on a story we've been covering with our UK friends, uh, Boris Johnson, has done what he always does and gone Boris Johnson, said something not very good, and he's going to pay the penalty for that. We'll discuss that in a little bit. Also, a great guest on the program today, Lillian Tara, uh, another great Young Voices contributor. She's in Virginia. She's a UVA student. Going to talk a little bit about Glenn Youngkin's education stuff now that the dust has settled a little bit. And we get into a broader conversation because her background's in economics, how education and economics are not inseparable although we really, really want to pretend like they are. We talk education, we talk economics, a wonderful conversation with Lillian Tara on today's program. First, uh, let's start domestically. We are having uh, hearings for uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Supreme Court Justice nominee by President Biden. The hearings are ongoing. Uh, We are now entering the third day of them. (laughs) I try really hard, especially at Ordinary-Times.com, which I'm very proud of. You can read all our great contributors there. Uh, We have pieces, like a lot of folks have, that's called Somebody Said Something on the Internet Pieces. And increasingly, our senators like to sit on dioceses at hearings like this, and they say something. And then uh, those of us that do media and writing and opining, we can just go off whatever that person said and go off and run with it. Um, I don't really want to do that because we could get into all the particulars of what they're saying in this hearing, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, their political talking points, this nomination is going to go through. Philip Bump in Washington Post, he does kind of analysis and data and things like this. He brought up two things, uh, two senators in particular, Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, although he lives in Northern Virginia, and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, although he spends more time podcasting these days. Uh, Both of these, by the way, they're both lawyers. Um, Ted Cruz was only uh, a year apart in law school from Judge Jackson, as it comes to find out. But they, of course, are using uh, the hearings for their own purposes because both of them are going to be running for president. Uh, And he has interesting insight on this. Reading from Philip Bump in The Washington Post today, 
Uh, this week, a different opportunity has availed itself to Senate Judiciary Committee's consideration of President Biden's nomination of Judge Kentaji Brown Jackson to sit on the Supreme Court. As members of that committee, both Hawley and Cruz have since taken the opportunity to turn the spotlight towards themselves. In fact, Cruz was actually pumping his podcast. That's why I jokingly refer to him as Ted Cruz, Republican Daily Wire. That's how he conducts himself. To be clear, this is a fundamental component of being a national politician, Philip Bump again. You don't get elected to the Senate without having a healthy attention for the attraction of eyeballs. Of course, it is also the case that senators should probe and question Supreme Court nominees. But if you're paying attention at all to the Jackson nomination, you probably heard something about how Holly and Cruz's lines of argument and less about, say, Senator Ben Sasse's or John Cornyn's. Both of them are Republicans as well. Holly and Cruz make sure that in the past two weeks they have been mentioned 124 15 second segments on Fox News or Fox Business about three times as often as Cornyn and Sass. Sound bites, folks. That takes some trying. It makes me wonder how effective this is. We know that senators like Cruz, Hawley, and Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee are adapted generating sound bites that play on Fox or are covered in conservative media. But what benefit does it yield? Does it, for example, lead to people contributing to their campaigns. And he goes through a bunch of data. He has some charts and he talks about the pattern of do their news media hits and their social media hits and their online contributions correspond with their fundraising. And he goes to this and he says, of course, there's an important distinction between these senators. Not all of them are up for reelection this year. One would expect those on the ballot in November to be raising money more enthusiastically than those who are not. Although, remember, if you're going to run for president, you're going to need money. So that's a different thing. And he has charts on this. I won't read you all the data on this, uh, except to mention this. Uh, The senators who are mentioned on TV constantly, the Philip Bump and Washington Post, an average of about 700 more times in 2021 than those who aren't on TV a lot, they also raised about 1.5 million more on average, meaning their cable news mentions were each worth about $2,000 a pop. That's pretty good work if you can get it. If it was Fox News mention, the benefit was about $3,000 in individual contributions on average. By the way, uh, this probably works the same for our friends on the left getting on MSNBC, CNN, whatever. We're just dealing with the conservatives right at the moment. These are small numbers, continuing with Philip Bump, and subjective decisions. Certainly, it's also correlation without proven causation. Did Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee, who's also a Republican, pull in less money because he's not on TV as much as Ted Cruz or because of who heard of Bill Haggerty? No offense to the good senator, of course. Nor is it necessarily the metric that Cruz and Hawley are measuring. Each wants Fox News attention, not only because of money, but because they have designs on higher office and the road to the Republican presidential nomination runs through the Fox News studios. And of course, because they are positioning themselves at the center of attention. If you're curious, Cruz and Holly were mentioned on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and Fox Business in about 12,000 15-second segments last year, more than three times as often as the six less attention-hungry senators, including above combined. The bullet point, they raised one quarter as much money. Some interesting data points from the really, really loud to whether or not they're being really, really effective in the real world. Some interesting stuff from Philip Bump at Washington Post. Go read the whole piece. We'll continue to cover these stories as they go along. We always want to get behind the news and see why the news is happening. These guys are trying to generate news mostly about themselves, and we'll cover it as such. And we'll continue with our tell right after this.
Now let's go back overseas. Der Spiegel, uh, that is the main newspaper online news outlet for Germany. Uh, those of you that know me, I lived in Germany two different times, almost five years total. Uh, when I was doing my military service, I love the German people. I have an affinity for them. Uh, read a lot of Der Spiegel. It also has an English language international edition, and that's what we're reading from today. A little bit of insight and perspective. This is an interview um, with political scientist Ivan Krastev. Uh, it is conducted by Lothar Goris. This is the English translation of both of these into Vladimir Putin, the man. And there's a couple tidbits. Out. Again, this is an interview, not an article. So you'll want to read through it yourself. This is uh, Krastev answering questions on Vladimir Putin. Quote, if you've been in power for 20 years in an authoritative state, nobody dares to contradict you anymore. You have established a system. You have become the system yourself. And you can't imagine that the entire country doesn't reflect that. You also can't imagine there being anybody who could be an adequate successor. For you have solved all problems yourselves for as long as you've lived. For Putin, Russia has long since ceased being a country in the standard sense. It's kind of a, a historic 1,000-year-old body. Uh, very, and he goes on to talk about Vladimir Putin in this way. Krestor says um, he wants to teach us a lesson, meaning the West. Because he wants to tell us, I've learned from you, even if that means doing exactly that which he hates us for. On that evening in Sochi, he's talking about when he met Vladimir Putin, he expressed outrage that the annexation of Crimea had been compared with Hitler's annexation of the Sunderland in 1938. Putin lives in historic analogies and metaphors. Those who are enemies of eternal Russia must be Nazis. And so he was quick to portray the conflict in the Donbass as genocide. Putin's overstatements became so extreme that they no longer had any connection to reality. He has become a hostage to his own rhetoric. He is constantly speaking of betrayal and deceit. Again, this is an interview. I'm pulling out snippets of it to read from you. Please go read the whole thing. From the West, from individuals, former Soviet republics in 2008 during the war against Georgia, he met with Alexander Volendikov. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, the editor-in-chief of Echo Moscovy radio station, which was one of the last critical media outlets in the country until it was shut down last week. Putin asked Valenikov, knew what he, Putin, had done in his previous job. Mr. President Valenikov replied, we all know where you came from. Do you know, Putin said, listen to this, what we did with traitors in my previous job? Yes, we know, said Valenikov. And do you know why I'm speaking with you? Putin said, because you are an enemy and not a traitor. In Putin's view, Ukraine committed the greatest crime imaginable. It betrayed Russia. It should also be mentioned that Western media has continued to create a false image of Putin. First, they said that Putin is corrupt, and that's true. But does it explain his politics? Putin has been the leader of a nuclear power for 20 years. He thinks in terms of history, betrayal, and malice. For such a person, corruption is merely an instrument of power. Money may have been important to Putin when he was younger, but it isn't any longer. Um, quick aside here, by some estimates, he may be the richest man in the world. That's how much money he's sitting on. That was before the sanctions, of course. Uh, back to Der Spiegel. Second, uh, they say that Putin is a cynical gambler and a trickster. In 2011, Putin said that the protests against him had been organized by the American embassy. Western analysis said that was propaganda because he knew that wasn't true. During that dinner, it became clear to me, though, this. He really believes it. In his misunderstanding of history, things never happen spontaneously. If people demonstrate, he doesn't ask, why are they out in the street? He asks, who sent them? 
when we take him at his word, he won't surprise us anymore. Remember that quote we're always talking about, the great Maya Angelou quote, people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Putin tells you who he is. Listen to this. Uh, back to Der Spiegel. When we take him at his word, he won't surprise us anymore. If you read his essay from July of last year, in which he wrote that Ukrainians and Russians are a single people and that he would never accept an anti-Russia Ukraine, you find out exactly what his intentions are. And third, they say that Putin is somebody who is extremely strategic and tactical. And the Der Spiegel interviewer asked this question. Listen to this part. Keep all this. Something we're not hearing in our media right now. Der Spiegel asked this question. You don't believe that he acts rationally. I know I've said it on this program. Maybe he's really lost it. Listen to this answer. Krastev. It is said that Putin watched Gaddafi's end on television for several hours and that his decision to retake the position of president for Medvedev, which hadn't initially been part of the plan, was a reaction to that because he didn't want to meet the same end as Gaddafi, executed by his own people. It is possible to negotiate with cynical, calculating people because they know that they too can benefit. But Putin seems to have radicalized as he's aged, perhaps even during his COVID isolation. He is on a mission, and risk avoidance is no longer a category for him. They may sound too psychoanalogizing, but he is part of the last Soviet generation. His job as a KGB agent was that of defending and protecting the Soviet Union, but he and his fellow agents were unable to do that. The Soviet Union collapsed overnight without a war, without an invasion. Putin and the KGB didn't understand what happened, but they understood they failed. I think he has a strong sense of guilt. And the Der Spiegel pers person points out he was stationed in East Germany at the time. And Kreshtiv says this, which makes things even more interesting. It is difficult to understand your country when it is changing dramatically and you are living abroad. From outside, the occurrences seem like a mystery as a kind of conspiracy that is incomprehensible. But what he experienced and comprehended was the national euphoria in Germany when the Berlin Wall fell because he was there. In his essay, he writes that a wall was erected between UK, Ukraine and Russia and that this wall must fall. As such, what is currently taking place in Ukraine, in Putin's eyes, is a peaceful reunification. The Der Spiegel interviewer says that sounds tragic. And Kreshtev says this. Listen to this. The tragedy is that we are seeing a violent recolonization of Ukraine and not a peaceful reunification. This misunderstanding about how the world works produces Putin's unhappiness. He really believes that it's not a war, but a special operation because there can be no war between a single people. And he will never believe those people who tell him it's not true. Putin sees himself as the father of the Russian nation. Perhaps he is, perhaps he's not, but one thing is clear. Putin unintentionally became the father of the Ukrainian nation. It was the annexation of Crimea and the Donbass that initially created a Ukrainian identity, one which is rooted in two principles, opposition to Russia and opposition to Putin. Now he finds himself in a situation that we know from Russian literature, which his father says to his son, I have created you, but now I must kill you. At the same time, Putin is destroying precisely that Russian identity, which he is constantly talking about. In 2014, a large majority of Russians supported the annexation of Crimea, but they were just members of an audience, applauding as they looked on. Now Russian soldiers aren't just dying, but they are also killing those who Putin himself said were their brothers. And the population is suffering under the sanctions. Stark contrast 
from somebody who has met with Vladimir Putin, who has studied Vladimir Putin, who understands him from that point of view. And it goes back to what we said. Vladimir Putin is telling us plainly who he is. We should believe him. More hotel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herdtel. Uh, let's go to Virginia. You know, in this election year, we're doing the thing where we actually have this crazy idea where when something happens in a state, we go talk to people about what's going on in that state. We don't need the national narrative. Let's find out what's really going on. Uh, had a little election in Virginia recently. May have heard of it. Uh, Glenn Youngkin came into power. Let's go to Virginia. Uh, Lillian Tara, another great Young Voices contributor. We do love having them on so also happens to be a UVA student, one of those Yahoo type people. And I'm not saying that is derogatory for those who don't know. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing lovely. Thanks so much for having me. No worries. And we won't even hold it against you that you're from the wrong Virginia. Um, appreciate your time today. Uh, okay. It's been a little bit uh, for a variety of reasons. One is it's Virginia and DC at Jay's, so it gets extra attention. Uh, the Glenn Youngkin Virginia election got a lot of coverage. He's been in office for a while. Uh, let's just kind of recap for a second what's been going on in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of press when he came into office. He had a flurry of activity as soon as he got into office. It's been a couple of months. Where are we at with Virginia and Glenn Youngkin, especially when it comes to policies like education, which really drove his campaign? Yeah, so uh, Glenn Youngkin definitely has continued to make good on on several of his promises. The mask mandates have been the most controversial one recently, but uh, he did put in an executive order preventing mask mandates in K through 12 schools, which was rejected by several of the major counties, Fairfax, my home county being one of them. But as we're seeing the pandemic start to die down, naturally, people, it's becoming less of a contentious issue. And that was a big deal for him coming in. Um, and of course, we have the other elements of, of the education controversies that aren't going to go away anytime soon. That would be critical race theory, which I explained about in my piece, and that would be um, a number of there was one specific issue in regards to uh, sexual assault in Loudoun County, which kind of pitted administrators against parents, which I also talk about briefly. So there's been a couple issues and a lot of them pit parents against the education system. And that's been a big issue that I've been looking into. Now, we've been talking about on our program and covering it um, just out of the abstract of the actual policies. All this is not good because what we really need to have is parents and the school system and the students and the teachers, those all need to be working in partnership. It doesn't look like that partnership is anywhere closer to getting fixed right now because it still seems really adversarial. As you looked at Virginia, because again, this was just very high profile recently, so it's kind of a good test bed looking at it now. What do you think we could do to actually repair that relationship? I know we got policies. I know they're trying to do certain things. Uh, the, the COVID stuff's getting rescinded. That'll take hopefully some of the pressure off. I think that just revealed fissures that were already there. What do you think they can do to actually have some partnership here? Because if the parents and the teachers and the students aren't all working together, this isn't going to work regardless of what policy we have, is it? Right. And I think the underlying issue with education, which is the battleground for many of these policies, because children are a very sensitive issue, but in general, with any government policies that it inherently forces conformity, right? And in education, it forces conformity in terms of what is being taught to students, how it's being taught, which students are being taught what. And this is an underlying issue. It's not unique to education. And quite frankly, the only way I see us addressing it is just 
introducing more flexibility to the system, which is difficult when there are special interests growing as the funding towards education grows. And that is why I am a huge advocate of charter schools or really anything that increases the flexibility for local agents to make decisions in regards to the children's education because parents are just so different and they'll they'll never agree 100% and you'll always have people push to the margins and you'll always have controversies like masks or how much administrators should be involved in hiding things from parents and um, now uh, COVID as well. Now we've had things like the mask mandate, which has been loud, it's been voiced for us, but then there's been other things that are really dangerous and ugly that kind of almost make that look pale in comparison. You talked about London County. Uh, you've talked about uh, sexual uh, assaults and issues like this in the school system. There's been incidences of abuse. That's not just for you. I know down uh, our way where the radio portion of this program comes out, the Wilmington area, case after case after case of the school system and teachers being abusive to students and things like this. Does the current environment My fear is where there's so much mistrust and there's all that lack of communication we're talking about, things that are really, really important, not like these policy issues aren't, but people that are abusers, people that are untoward individuals, they can use that kind of a scenario to really do some really wicked, evil stuff. And the way the system is right now and the way the conversation is, nobody's really prepared to deal with it because everything else has been blown up into this really bad confrontational stuff and then something that we need to be confrontational happens and folks really don't know what to really do with it and it doesn't get handled really well does it yeah i think i think the the question that's come to mind and i'm going to bring up one of the most famous uh mcauliffe uh blips i think which is that he said something along the lines of i don't think parents should be telling teachers what how to teach and what that really shows is that we've gotten to a point where the public education system is so widespread, bloated, mandatory, et cetera, et cetera, that we're forgetting who employs who. And teachers are ultimately, in my view at least, there to serve the parents, right? This is a system about meeting the needs of the parents. But once teachers become, for example, highly licensed, they're required to be highly licensed, let's say, at least on paper, uh, they are supposedly very specialized and they're taught that they have a monopoly on the knowledge on how to teach children, they tend to develop an authority in this regard. And that creates a lot of friction between them and parents that's already there based on differences in people's uh, teaching methods. And once you have this this authority group that believes that they know uniquely how to teach children based on some special academic knowledge, that doesn't run well, and that doesn't fly well with parents who think that they know the children best, regardless of what an education degree might might say. And this is an issue with any big bureaucratic institution, um, especially one that has very rigid procedures for getting to the top that doesn't allow for flexibility in judging the quality of an individual teacher. Part of that is, you know, issues with unions and all that. Um, And it's something that I I think would help a lot is just to loosen up that. And that would restore more faith on the parents' part because they think that they have more agency in it. Right now, what I see is that the Youngkin voters think that they're having their authority over their most important part of their life being taken away from them by an institution. And to, in, in some way, deinstitutionalize education would be to make it more malleable and let parents consequently have a, have a greater say, uh, especially when things like sexual assault or these scandals come up where it seems like it's pitting the entire system against the entire parent base and it splits them into two. 
Right. Talking to Lillian Tara. All right. The pushback on that, of course, is a lot of these parents showed up at school boards and go, nobody on the school board agrees with me. And some folks rightly pointed out was like, well, yeah, because this is the first time you've been here. All of a sudden we're having a crisis and now everybody's showing up and paying attention to these issues. This stuff didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. So while parents are rightfully upset at some of the things like the McAuliffe comment, which was just horrible about saying parents shouldn't have it, you know, of course, nobody really believes that, but it's a horrible thing to say. But actions speak louder than words. The truth is there's a lot of parents and a lot of before this current pressing crisis, they didn't pay a lot of attention and they weren't involved in their meetings and this sort of thing. So the blame has to go to them as well, does it not? Yes, absolutely. I think. It's just a part of a, in, in some ways, it's not anybody's fault. It's just a natural progression towards outsourcing everything to state agents, let's say, the state being one of them, or the state education system being one of them. And I, that, I think, requires some controversy, such as the mask or such as critical race theory, let's say, to get people rethinking and, and realizing that they maybe should have greater say in their children's education, and they need to be responsible for that and they need to make the first step. So certainly a lot of parents have been perfectly happy to, to outsource. Many of them are just too busy. Many of them assume that the teachers know best themselves. And I think what we're realizing is that they may necessarily not. And even parents who believed in the past that this was the case may start to realize that having those credentials doesn't guarantee the well-being of their children, let's say, at least by their terms. Yeah, we're talking to Lillian Tarr, another great Young Voices contributor, talking a little bit about Virginia uh, education. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about that after the break. Might bring up a little bit of economics, something she occasionally likes to talk about from time to time. More with Lillian Tarr right after this on Mar Hertel. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're talking to our friend Lillian Tara, another great Young Voices contributor, talking a little bit of Virginia. Okay, you are an uh, economics person. Uh, anytime we talk about education and anytime we talk about education controversies, we got to talk about the money, though, because we all know that the, the predominant thing to try to fix education in America is let's throw more money at it. When it comes to these issues of trust, when it comes to issues of policy, though, uh, money's not going to fix this. Hiring more teachers isn't going to fix this. You talked about flexibility being important to something we need to put into the system, but this is a system that's shown itself to be, of all things, the least flexible. Is there a practical way you can see to get into this other than maybe they're going to have to address it as a funding mechanism? They're going to have to address it as a training mechanism. What do you see that practically they can try to do some flexibility in what has become a really, really big bureaucratic nightmare in the U.S. education system? Oh, well, I think there's never been a government program that that wouldn't be perfect or improved with with extra funding. I think the issue is that the the systems that are set up and how the money is used are always going to waste it. And so I'm going to give a couple examples. Uh, one of them would be uh, how teachers are hired and fired. So in a lot of districts, uh, especially thanks to union interests, what we see is that teachers get pay, pay rises based on seniority and they get them as they age. That in no way guarantees competence. And there is no room for local principals, let's say, to hire and fire on the basis of competence alone because you have all these state and uh, local licensing laws, for example. And these serve as barriers to entry for perfectly good teachers otherwise. And this is an example that I always say 
that I find to be very wrong in terms of how hiring is, which is the fact that a doctor can't walk into a high school and ask to teach a biology course and be hired for that because he doesn't have a license for teaching it is an example of how that requirement is weeding out some of the best teachers because you don't need a teaching degree to be competent and, and competent in teaching a subject that you're clearly good at professionally. Um, and reducing those barriers would open up the field for a lot of wonderful teachers from tradition, untraditional avenues that we haven't considered before. And I think that is des des desperately needed. You mentioned in your writing, there was three uh, executive orders that Glenn Youngkin uh, issued pretty much on day one, give or take. We talked about a couple of them already, uh, but one of the other ones, uh, when you're talking about installing confidence in the school system, parents were talking about they want more transparency. Well, one thing that got pointed out was with, and even before COVID, but COVID really pushed this forward, Things like syllabuses, things like lessons plan, almost all school systems now have some sort of an online system, whether it's PowerSchool, Blackboard, uh, Ingenuity, there's a couple of different ones. Almost all of them have some kind of online thing. Kind of the, some of the argument on that was, well, that's trending that way anyway. Is that sort of stuff necessary to actually be put into law or is that infringing onto the teachers? Uh, is there such a thing as too much in-classroom interference from the outside? I know parents have a right for their children, but at the same time, they aren't professional educators. We do need to give the teachers a little bit of room to breathe here as well, don't we? Sure, and I think actually many parents would agree with you in that most parents have no interest in micromanaging things like Blackboard or relatively uncontroversial means of delivering education, let's say. And I think the greatest controversy has been of substance and that would be more political issues. I think up till now, I've, I've rarely seen a teacher. I think the issue with COVID was that some students were uh, unhappy being kept at home. Some would rather have been kept at home. And that was the political element of COVID and not really the educational side of things. So yeah, I think many would, would agree with you on that. Let's talk about that for just a second because again, your background is in economics. That's where you like. Um, Economically, I, I know I wrote about it when you have the schools completely shut down and you have, you know, parents and teachers and students all in the same boat where they can't go into a school, but they still had to go to the grocery store together. They still had to do other things together that that weighs on the economy in a weird way because that gets into people's mindsets because I know I wrote about it, you know, the shopping centers right across from where the grade school and the high school is and all the same people. They're not allowed to go in the school, but they're all at the grocery store right across the street. That sort of a mentality that gets into the economy a little bit, doesn't it? When you just break a routine like going to school every day or uh, a lot of parents that were maybe part time workers while their kids are in school. Now they got to be home all the time. The child's care stuff. We we're back away from it a little bit. I think the way schools and education and the school shutdown was really one of the real drivers of the economic uncertainty that didn't get talked about because when the kids aren't in schools, because let's call it, call it what it is, education is a giant daycare program for a lot of kids. Um, that's a massive disruption to the economy. And I don't think we talked about it enough because when the parents don't have certainty about their childcare and their children, there's just no way they're economically going to be spending like they normally are, are they? No. And that's a really, really good point because Ultimately, education serves two functions. One is education, perhaps in quotes, and the second is glorified daycare. And right now, as a society, we're at the point where we, the norm is both parents working and sending their kids to school. And at this point, it makes sense to put your kids somewhere, as long as they're not being actively harmed, it's better than keeping them home because parents aren't comfortable or qualified, supposedly, or interested 
in homeschooling. And I think this is actually very interesting because we should be looking at alternatives in terms of where kids could go other than um, the traditional school systems because they have to be somewhere while their parents work. And so we have to recognize this, that this isn't just an issue about how kids are being taught, but how that's benefiting the parents. And so this is just as much a parent issue as it is the children. In many cases, people don't even care so much about the education uh, as they do the fact that the kids are being occupied for eight hours a day. Uh, and so, yes, remembering that parents have their own needs in this regard is is super, super important. And they should be talking about the struggles that they have and, and how they they feel that their kids should be taken care of while they're working or if they'd be comfortable working less. Yeah, talking about it. Yeah, t- talking to Lillian Tower. Uh, the other end of that spectrum, though, we found out during the COVID pandemic, and it didn't get talked about a lot, but it showed up in the data a lot to people pay attention to it. The other end of the spectrum, the children who don't have two parents, some of them don't have one parent, uh, disaffected kids, underprivileged communities, minority groups. There was a lot of kids that got really lost in the shuffle when schools shut down. I... <laughs> It, it's it's a little upsetting to me because we talk about online school and things like that. It's like, yeah, that works great. They talk about, well, you can always homeschool your kid if you don't. Most parents aren't equipped to do that. I'm a I'm a fan. Look, if you can homeschool your kids, God bless. That's a you know there that there's a lot that goes into that if you're doing it right. Most people can't do that. It's, I think that's always going to be a small percentage. But when you look at the students that got left behind and they and some of them have just disappeared from the school system and still not come back. Doesn't to me, this says that when we look at education, it needs to be an all of the above type thing, not just a one or two solution thing, because we found out with the pressure of this on with these disadvantaged kids, kids with different parenting situations, one size fits all does not work in education. And I think that's a lesson out of this pandemic we need to take of, hey, when we're talking about like school choice and stuff, it's not just a matter of giving certain people a choice. It's about having an all of the above policy that best benefits children in education. Yeah, definitely. I think what I what I love as about markets as a as a free market type person is that they're incredibly versatile and very very adaptive to local needs based on local information. And this is something that is incredibly important in education because the local agent is the teacher working with that individual child. And with this element of personality, you just don't have something that can be seen from a state bureaucrat's perspective. And this is why I'm a big advocate of say charter schools. But one of the issues is that as soon as you bring in monetary issues, let's say, or you say that charter schools are are monetarily more effective, you get charges of, well, you're trying, oh, you care about profit more about our children or any amount of money is worth it if our children are being educated. The first response is, well, they're not. And the second is, so money does matter. And it's important to realize that when systems are doing more with less money, it's reflective of a general efficiency in terms of recognizing needs and addressing them. And that is greater than just profit. That's more about how students are having their needs met. But let's just go there with you because I know we were talking about it because you're, you're an economist at heart. People get icky when they talk about education and money. They just do. They it, they don't feel like it doesn't feel right to them because like, oh, no, it's education. It's important. We shouldn't put that with money. But the truth is, if you're going to properly study things like economics, it's it's figuring out how things work in a practical way, even though there's all this theory and all these big words and all this math that I really don't understand because I was never good at math because I was kind of a goof off in school and I never learned how to do all that finding X stuff. But that goes to the point of 
we we want to talk about education like it's this unicorn farm where we go and pick out our unicorn and ride it to success. And that's not how it works. It's got to be practically applied at some point. And economic principles, market kind of principles say this works, this doesn't work because we can follow the money. And the money is almost always tells you the truth because, you know, money don't care. It's just the figures are what the figures are. Wouldn't we do better having some not for profit, not for the things like people would say derogatory, but some principles of like, hey, better stewardship of our funding, better stewardship of our money and better accountability of this giant government organization called Public Education America. That would be probably a healthier way of looking at it than just making it this giant federal jobs program and daycare center that it's kind of become um, de facto for because of let's just call it what it is neglect and it's treated like a potted plant. The emotional issue is a big one, not only in education, but in any policy where people feel entitled to a certain service or good. It's how could you how could you ever discuss costs in the world of healthcare? How could you ever discuss costs in the world of education? There are things more important than money. But my first response is that I don't think economics is about money at all. And I think most economists would agree with me on this. Money is just a way of communicating in the market, let's say. But it's it's a method of solving issues of scarcity and there are scarce resources and there are competing interests for those scarce resources. And we can apply this way of thinking to education, not monetarily at all. Students have different interests. The attention of teachers, the expertise of teachers is limited. How are we going to best divide up the collective wisdom of society to address the competing interests of many different individual students? And It's a view of society that inherently accounts for diversity of needs and wants. And I think that's why it's best suited for dealing with issues of conflict that arise when these interests and wants compete. And this is something I advocate for. So I do think getting it's it's hard because when people don't study economics from the pedantic perspective, they think of it as that money and greedy and capitalistic domain where it it should have nothing to do with our children. But rephrasing it as a way of differing needs, not monetary needs, differing special needs for children or minority children or uh, students who work better at home, students who work better in school. And parents know this. And so by appealing to their differences and understanding that they would appreciate the versatility themselves, we can get them on board for more flexibility. And I think parents are generally on board with having more choice. And this is a very politicized issue on the teaching end and on the union end, especially. Yeah. Lily and Tara, that's great stuff. That's a good answer to a really, really hard question. Good job. Uh, Appreciate having you on the program today. Let folks know where they can follow you, your social media, where you're writing, what you got going on, um, how in the world it is that you come to be studying things like Chinese and Persian languages and all this amazing stuff up there in the house that Thomas Jefferson built. Let folks know how they can follow you going forward until we see you on the program again. Yeah, so I very recently uh, just made a Twitter. So that would be Liltara underscore X, which I believe you'll have linked as well. Um, And my op-ed in the Roanoke Times was on charter schools. And I will be hopefully on the show in the future. And uh, yes, I'm studying Chinese and Persian, but very much into economic history, um, politics and all that. So most of my work in the future will be in that domain. Yeah. Uh, speaking Chinese comes in very handy in global economics because that is going to be the global economic issue going forward. We can't even talk about Russia and Ukraine without talking China. So that's going to come in handy. You can come back and explain it to me like I'm five because I need those things explained to me. Look forward to seeing you again. And we'll talk soon, my friend. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
I want to touch in on a story we've been covering. Uh, we got some UK perspective from our friends frequently, our Young Voices contributors from over there. We like to pay attention to what's going on over in the UK. Uh, we've talked about Boris Johnson a couple different times. Uh, he stuck his foot back in his mouth. Uh, he compared Ukraine's war to the Brexit vote. This is from the BBC. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson compared the plight of Ukraine with the Brexit vote, saying people's instincts are close to choose freedom every time. Mr. Johnson said he didn't believe people voted to leave the European Union because they were hostile to foreigners, but because they want to be free. The problem is, of course, this had massive blowback that a referendum is not the same thing as being invaded by a country and having to literally fight in the streets with weapons and Molotov cocktails to try to defend your homes and your families. Oh, Boris, <laughs> he's his own worst enemy. He just about was at a controversy with this rally around the flag moment over Ukraine, and he promptly put his foot right back in his mouth. One of the great things that will serve you well in life is understanding this little truth. Things that are different are not the same. We all use analogies. I use them a lot because I'm a writer and a commentator, but you got to be careful with analogies. They can lead you into some really bad places, like comparing like comparing the Brexit referendum with a shooting war in Ukraine, trying to put you on that level. You end up sounding really, really silly. So as we continue to check in with our UK friends uh, about Boris Johnson and the things going on in the UK, wanted to touch up on that. Uh, he had done well rallying Britain and working with the European Union on certain things, but Boris Johnson's still going to Boris Johnson sometimes, and he's going to say really ridiculous things like that we'll continue to cover the story we'll continue to keep up with our friends over there and we'll continue with her tell right after this Now, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. You know, we always take the last segment of the program to do something a little uplifting, and I love this story so very, very much. It's from People Magazine. I don't want to read the headline because it will kind of give the story away a little bit, so let's just read it quickly from People. Brittany Berry, 32, first met daughter Gracie, now 12, when she was three days old, and right away, Barry had this overwhelming feeling this little girl is going to be part of my life, she told People. At the time, Barry was only 20 and living at home with her mom and dad while working on her associate's degree. I thought my parents were going to think I was crazy, but they were on board, she said. She became Gracie's main caregiver when the girl, whose biological father is a family member of Barry's, was just a few weeks old. And when Gracie was four, Barry became her legal guardian. Although Barry says she always wanted to adopt Gracie, she didn't think it was something she would ever be able to afford. Recalling one conversation she had with a lawyer after getting guardianship, Barry said, quote, he didn't even give me a number and just told her it would be very expensive. And years later, another attorney told her virtually the same thing. I just figured maybe she can emancipate or we'd wait until she's 18 and I could adopt her then, she said. Then a conversation with a family celebration changed everything. While attending her brother's wedding in November of 2020, Barry caught up with her second cousin, Cassie Bedome. And when Bedome had spent time with Gracie whenever she came to visit. She had no idea Barry hadn't formally and legally adopted her. 
quote, I started asking questions and just kind of got the full story of the legal guardianship and how that doesn't cover if something happens to Brittany, the dome said. That was a source of anxiety for both Gracie and Brittany. And after talking things over with Badome, offered to cover the cost. Casey said, if the only thing standing in your way is money, then let me help, Barry recalls. On July 6, 2021, that generosity paved the way for Barry to legally become Gracie's mom. Gracie and I have always shared a beautiful bond, but now that bond is permanent and nobody can ever take it away, she said. That day, Gracie also took the last name of Barry's now fiance, Brandon Johnson. And the water treatment chemical salesman she met in 2014. They are also parents to son Boston Four and daughter Montana Two. Up until her adoption, her last name was Barry, which is the same last name as me, but she wanted his last name, Barry said, noting that Johnson plans to become Gracie's legal dad after the couple get married later this year. Now, Barry is doing her part to give other families the same blessing she received. This is where this gets really cool. In May 2021, Barry began the process of transforming her garage into the Adopted Closet, a nonprofit vintage and gently used clothing store whose net proceeds help families pay the often heavy fees charged by adoption attorneys, which typically range from eight to $40,000 per Adopt Us Kids. The idea came to Barry one day while she was hitting yard sales with her mom, Susan. I had already begun struggling with how do I thank Casey, she recalls, just saying thank you didn't seem enough. Once it dawned on her that she could resell items and raise money to cover families' adoption fees, word spread quickly in the tight commu- tight-knit community she lives in, and soon, quote, my front yard was filled with bags of clothes. Since opening in September, Barry has helped families like Cassandra and Adam Holdorf and their two boys, ages five and seven, make their adoptive dreams come true. Barry said Gracie was so excited when the process was finalized. She told me she wanted to sign the checks, she said with a laugh. On weekends and weekdays, Barry logs into her store website around 4.30 a.m. to catalog and price donated clothes items and available online purchases and shipping worldwide. Winter weather temporarily closed the shop's physical doors. This is a garage after all. But their grand opening resale is slated for April 23rd, and Barry hopes to open an actual storefront sometime soon. As for her big goal of the year, Barry said she would like to fund all the adoptions in Scott County on National Adoption Day, which falls on November 19th. She doesn't yet know how that will be, but she's already in contact with an attorney connected to the effort. Listen to this quote. People get scared because they don't think they can adopt, she said. They don't think they can do it mentally, physically, and financially. I want to help them see it as possible. An outstanding story. Uh, God bless them. You can read the piece in people.com. It's written by uh, Maria Pasquani and Johnny Dodd. Great story to end the day on. And that'll do it for her till for today. Thank you. Make sure you're subscribing. However, you're watching the show. If you're watching on YouTube, love to see you subscribe. Make sure you leave a comment. Love to hear from you. We've actually used show ideas from those. So feel free to reach out to us that way. Uh, any of the podcasting platforms, if you're listening to the podcast version, please make sure you subscribe. That gets you everything we do automatically every weekday, twice on Sunday on Sundays, long form podcasts when we do that, plus all the back episodes of Herd Tell. Best way to stay in contact with us. Reach out directly, show at gmail.com. If you want to email us, show on the Twitter and also my Twitter uh, and all our guests' social media is on the screen graphics. If you're watching on YouTube, love to hear from you. Reach out. This only works because you're listening, and the more you participate, the better the show is. So we look forward to hearing from you. That'll do it for Herd Tell. So wherever you and yours are across the street, around the world, we hope you are well. 
We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Hurtel. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.